Bovine respiratory disease and therapy are big questions for most producers and veterinarians. How can we tell which calves are going to respond to therapy and which will result in fatalities? We'll find out more today as we review an article on bovine science with BCIs after the abstract. I've got Dr. Brian Lubers here with me today to talk about an article. Good morning, Brian. Hi, Brad. So you've got a great article for us that answer, and we always start out these talking about clinical questions. What are we going to talk about? This is an excellent clinical question because it addresses can we better figure out which calves at treatment are going to die or not? Which article did you pick out for us today? Yeah, so today's article is titled Factors Associated with Bovine Respiratory Disease, Case Fatality in Feedlot Cattle. So exactly what you said we were going to talk about. Um, and this was published in the Journal of Animal Science in 2021. Uh, and the primary author is Blake Bro Hall. Uh, lead author is Luciona uh, Gonzalez. So, um, so just to kind of give an overview of what this research was and what they were trying to do. So this was a field study. It was done in a commercial feed yard in Australia. And the researchers were looking for either uh, character i'll say characteristics either animal characteristics such as days on feed or in weight or average daily gain or they did do some they did a they drew blood and they looked at the metabolomics to see if there were specific metabolites that they could associate again with the probability of dying of respiratory disease and and all of this they're basically looking at the time of treatment so an animal's been diagnosed with BRD. We have it at the shoot. Is there something we can use to predict outcome for that particular animal? Excellent. So good, good summary, Brian. And you can find this article and follow along if you want. But as we go through, we'll post a link in the show notes to the description of this article specifically so you can find it. Part of what we do on this, Brian, is is able to go through, and you and I have both read this article, and then we can talk through what are some of the characteristics, and we have a systematic way that we go through that by, and, and I'll just work through, I may give a little overview, even though we talk about it each time, and then we'll walk through each step. But first, we're going to review the abstract and hypothesis, then we're going to look at some of the results and tables, then materials and methods, and then we'll then we'll make some conclusions based on it. Now, materials and methods, we break up a little bit by bias and data structure and data analysis. But I think that system, the reason we do it that way is if we get to any of those steps along the process and there's a fatal flaw, we stop reading the manuscript. You can assume that manuscripts we're talking about here, we're not going to have a lot of fatal flaws early in the process, or this would be a pretty short podcast, but we'll, we'll work our way through as we go. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, I think, we should probably use the term fatal flaw somewhat loosely because if we, along those different steps, if we answer no, it may not be that the study's actually flawed. It just doesn't apply to that particular reader. And, and in, you know, in the interest of time is a precious resource for everybody and saving their time, if it's not something that's going to apply to that scenario, then why should they finish reading the article, right? Absolutely. So, but yeah, I agree with you. If we, if we encounter a fatal flaw, it's time to move on. And we hope that you know, this manuscript's obviously been through the peer review process, so we hope that we don't have very many of those, but certainly they sneak through. But, but once in a while, you will see one with a subjective outcome, like clinic, not this paper, but 
subjective outcome like clinical score and there was no blinding in the process. That's one I don't know how to interpret the results of that study. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about this one. And the first question is, is this relevant? Is it a good clinical question? And is it relevant to the audience that I care about? And kind of two different answers on this paper. Yeah, I think so. And so um, one is, you know, the, is it relevant to my clinical scenario? So you kind of posed a clinical scenario at the beginning of our session here. And I think, you know, most of us would say that having tools that help us predict the severity or the outcome of a BRD case, that's probably relevant to a lot of beef produce. And, and this one, again, we'll talk about kind of who the audience was or who the study population is. But, but I think for a lot of people, that's a relevant clinical question, right? We'd all like to have that tool. Absolutely. So the, the part where we go, we kind of get, eh, maybe it applies to me, maybe not. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this was a group out of Australia that did this research. And this study was done in a commercial Australian feed yard. And there are certainly things about Australian cattle production that very closely mimic North American cattle production, right? So we can say, well, maybe um, these were um, mixed breed uh, steers and some of them, part of the study population was sourced from feed yard, or sorry, from sale barns and others were directly consigned from backgrounders. So, and, and a little bit older than some of our typical population. Yeah, these are one to two year olds. So yeah, so okay. I think maybe one thing that we need to think about as far as being relevant to North American production is coming from Australia, the vaccine and processing protocols are going to be a little bit different just because of the products they have available to them. And this particular study, and I, I'll assume that it was not done, but they don't mention the use of, of mass medication on arrival or metaphylaxis. And so now we can, now we start to diverge about, okay, does this, is this going to, is this going to have the same predictive value in a group of high risk calves in a North American system that have received metaphylaxis and have received a different vaccine protocol? And I, I will go though the other way. It's not, this is not a controlled environment. This is a commercial operation. This has some external validity because it matches the typical management practices. So best application is the answers apply directly to Australian feeder cattle, just exactly like you described. Do they apply to us? Much better than many other studies do. I mean, it applies pretty darn well. So there are some caveats that you say, okay, I need to take that into account. But let's, let's, so in answer to the first one on the research abstract, and does it answer our clinical question? Yes, it could. So now let's look at some of the results. And on results, you and I like to start tables and figures. Yeah. So it's kind of an easy way to scan through an article pretty quickly and get an idea. And if you look through, so the first, the first visual that you come to, I guess, is there is a table that just outlines their, they have a part of their criteria for being on this study was meeting a clinical illness score. And so they used a, a seven point, well, let me see. They used seven characteristics on a zero to three point scale. So they looked at lethargy was one characteristic, head carriage, labored breathing, cough, nasal discharge, ocular discharge, and rumen fill. And each of those, like I said, was scored on a zero to three. And one of the interesting things about this study, and we're, we're going to get to materials and methods, but I'll mention it now since I'm talking about the clinical illness score, 
is any uh, an animal that was a one or greater. So any sign of bovine respiratory disease um, was made that animal eligible for this study. So, so it could have been something like they have mild lethargy would be a score of one, mild labored breathing would be a score. So it could have had. So what you're saying is the inclusion criteria were very liberal. We would allow lots of animals to be included in the study as having a sign of respiratory disease. Yeah. So I guess to rephrase that a little bit differently, because they use seven characteristics and a zero to three point scale, the maximum clinical illness score was a 21. But to get on the study, you just had to be a one, right? So one out of 21 was enough to become uh, designated as a BRD case, and then you would be on study. So yeah, that and and that's probably a little bit different than what we do would do here. We'd probably see a little more moderate to severe disease before we would diagnose cases. But we'll get into study. I think it's okay for what they did. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense too because of how they they're going to classify the final outcome as lived or died, which we're pretty certain which which fell into which category. Right? We have a good yeah, distinction yeah. there. Yeah, we do. We do. So then they've got a table that describes, it's kind of the descriptive statistics for their animal health factors, you know, in weight, days on feed at first pull, days to death, average daily gain uh, to first pull. You know, there's some other things. I'm going to skip that because table three, or sorry, table four is the same criteria, but they actually, the table four is the comparison of those characteristics between animals that survived and animals that died. And so um, I guess I'll let you talk about what you think is interesting, but for me, so things that were significantly associated or predictive of death is the other way that I'd say it. So days on feed at first pull, um, those animals that died had a lower days on, they were earlier in the feeding period than, and they were more likely to die than those that were pulled later in the feeding period. Day 15 for those that died, day 22 for those that didn't. Yep. Um, average daily gain to first pull was lower in those that died. It was actually negative in those that died compared to those that live. Um, weight at first BRD pull was lighter calves were more likely to die. Um, overall visual score, so that's our 21-point scale. Uh, animals that had a higher clinical illness score were more likely to to die. And then the number of treatments, the more treatments you had, the more likely you were to die. Those are interesting. I don't know that I'm surprised at many of those. What about rectal temp? So that's what I was getting to. A couple things that I kind of do find interesting are the things that weren't significantly associated with death. So in weight was not significantly associated with death. Rectal temperature was not associated with death. It was actually, it was numerically the same for both. It was 40 animals that were 40 degrees. That was the average of those that survived and animals that were 40 degrees Celsius was the average of those that lived. So no difference there. Um, and lung auscultation scores were not statistically different for those that lived or died. So that was kind of interesting. So the rectal temp is a lot of times what we use as a 
temperature threshold to decide if it's a case or not a case. Many trials have used that. And you said 40, which is 104 for yeah. those of us in Fahrenheit world. So oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I, I think is important to think about that they didn't show a difference here between lived and died. There's a couple other papers that would tell us that there's not a big difference between cattle at first pull in temperatures of whether they die or not until you reach some much higher level. The one thing I do want to nitpick on a little bit here, Brian, is the, so these clinical scores, we see this a lot of times in BRD trials where we have a clinical score and it may be one, two to three, or in this case, they combine several scores and we've taken things with names like mild, moderate, severe, and we put numbers on them and that lets us do statistics easier, but it is not really representative of what the underlying data is. We're trying to come up with a gradient and put a number on it and compare those numbers. They compared the actual numerical clinical score. My preference, what I'd like to see is what's the probability that calves that died were above some threshold or under some threshold? And what's the probability that calves that lived were above or below some threshold, which actually I could more readily use clinically, right? So instead of giving me the average clinical score, let me know what's the likelihood that a calf that had these symptoms w would die or live. Yeah. And I, and I think you bring up two, two important points. One is from the statistical perspective, that's not really how we would handle that data. And two, and more importantly, from the clinical perspective is that, and all you just use their numbers. So animals that lived had an average clinical score of nine, okay? And animals that died had an average clinical score of 11. Well, I don't know what that, right? I don't know so, what to do with that. So give me, give me the threshold where it makes a difference that I can start to separate those from that lived and died. You know, is that, is it 10, right? Because that's what there is 10 and above. Okay. And I can do something with that. So, yep. I agree with that. Um, they, they've got a couple more tables in here and I think we'll probably just cover that when we get to the results because it gets to what did they actually find in their study? Um, so I think, I think we should probably move on in our flow chart. Okay, so next next question, appropriate control of bias. So maybe describe what type of study this is. Yeah, so this is this is an observational study and we've talked about different kinds of studies. So essentially they it was they purchased animals through it, it's a commercial setting, right? It's a field study um, and as animals became sick with naturally occurring disease, they looked at characteristics and we've kind of talked about some of these whether they're production characteristics days on feed and so on and so forth or then they did pull blood on those animals at the time of first brd diagnosis and looked at some some metabolomics or metabolites um, to see if they could find some important variables there that would predict outcomes so inherently one of the things we ask about relative to is blinding and randomization and in this case, randomization is not mentioned because it's an observational study. There's not going to be randomization that's part of it. And you don't know the outcome at the time you're enrolling cattle. So you're drawing blood, you're taking samples. I don't know the outcome. So blinding is not a part of the case allocation. Uh, how, however, I think one thing that's nice to add to some of these is if blinding wasn't included in either the laboratory analysis or the statistics and i don't see a mention of it either way but we know 
it wasn't the cases weren't selected based on outcomes because they couldn't be. So right. yeah. that's our big concern. Right. So it's observational study. We sampled everybody. And so, like you said, at the time of the sampling, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So blinding of the observers isn't necessary. Like you said, it'd be nice to have a mention of whoever analyzed the data was blinded to outcome. But that, I mean, it, they may have done it. It's just not mentioned. Okay. So next, next thing we go, and we talked a little bit about selection uh, and the observational study, the experimental unit in this case was the individual animal, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then we go to data analysis, which I already kind of jumped ahead to a little bit when I talked about the, a little bit on the clinical scores, but anything else on, on data analysis there, because most of the rest of it, it, it appears that how they did the statistics handled the data appropriately by including some of the known covariates or factors that those cattle had in common, right? They didn't all come from the same pen. They came and they controlled for any sources of other variation that would be in those cattle. So the statistics to me make sense as they've measured everything and reported it. So that leads us to some of the other findings, unless you had any other comments on data. No, and just, I guess, one one comment about the methods. And again, this is where we kind of, as a, as a clinician, I'd probably lean a little bit on the peer review process here, where making sure that the laboratory methods, because they did, they did do some laboratory work, make sure that those are up to snuff, so to speak. Um, and just, I, you know, I, the, probably looking at some of the more basic blood analyses, I can go, yeah, that's probably the metabolomics part. I, I actually kind of lean on the peer review. I, I think whoever looked at this, hopefully they were able to look at that and go, ah, the methods look good here. I don't have any reason just kind of scanning them to go, uh, I, I doubt something, but I think as a clinician, that's a point where you just kind of, okay, let, I, um, this is a reputable journal. I'm, thinking it probably went through multiple peer reviewers. So hopefully somebody was able to evaluate that. And I'm essentially at that point, I'm just going to trust those results. But I, I think that's a fair assessment in this case. So Brian, I, I read the metabolomics materials and methods section. I did not retain nor understand the metabolomics materials and methods. I, I actually read it twice, but I probably <laughs> didn't get much further than you did. So, uh, but I think, you know, a lot of these things, this isn't, this isn't hugely experimental. I mean, these are some of the things they look at, um, lactate, acetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate. I mean, I think we'd have pretty good estimates of some of these. So um, I'll, I'll trust it. I think it's probably up, up to snuff anyway. Yeah, and their stats, their stats look good, the way they control them. So let's get, to, let's get to some results. We talked about some. They found, and just to, just to kind of recap, in between lived and died, Performance factors, average daily gain, days on feed, a little bit different. But they tested for viruses. So I want to direct you to table table three, Brian, or you can go to table five. Yeah, I think table five is probably okay. a, a little better kind of summary of that. So, yeah, you're right. So they looked at, and we didn't talk about this, but they did look at the serology status to IBR, BBD, BRSV, PI3, and bovine adenovirus they also looked so that was sero status so they did that at feedlot entry they did it at first pull and then they did it combined of entry and first pull um, they also did i assume it's pcr i believe it was pcr um, of a nasal swab at first pull to look for the presence of 
IBR, BVD, BRSV, PI3, and then coronavirus at that time. So, and what they found, so there was no relationship between as far as those that, animals that survived and died um, for seronegative status at entry or first pull. But when they combined them, BVD status was indicative, uh, was, I, I should say predictive, I guess, predictive of outcome um, if they had failed to zero convert, then they were more likely to die. To BVD, they're more likely to die. Um, and the same thing with uh, PI3. And then as far as the nasal swab and detecting those viruses at first pull, if they were positive for bovine coronavirus, they their odds ratio was all over 13. So an odds ratio of 13, meaning the presence of the virus they were 13 times more likely to die um, if they had that positive, particular positive result. And that was bovine coronavirus. And I may jump in and go back to observational study. We're not saying that those are causative. We can't say cause and effect, but we can say that cattle that died were more likely to have a coronavirus cultured from nasal swab at first pull than cattle that lived. We don't know if that is cause or effect of something else that happened to those cattle along the way. Yeah, that's right. So no, not not causative. So interesting on the BVD and the Corona. I do want to talk a little bit about the metabolomics and there and the metabolomics and the reason we've lumped it with that word is there's a whole list of things that were tested, looking at some of these measures of how the metabolism is going on in the animal and at the cellular level is my base understanding yeah there were like 33 metabolites that they looked at in their in their blood assay and so yeah it's pretty extensive i'm just going to summarize it so there are eight or nine that were statistically significant as far as predicting survival or death and some of them were higher in animals that died and some of them were lower in animals that died and the the summary kind of the discussion part of this paper the authors pointed out that essentially you can kind of go back to if the either, either being higher or lower than i'll say baseline although they didn't use that word was likely indicative of negative energy balance which then negative those animals that were in negative energy balance were more likely to die of brd which also fits with their production data of animals that died of BRD actually had negative average daily gain from the time of arrival to first pull. So I think the metabolomics kind of supports what their other data pointed to, and they kind of wrapped it up all into that kind of one summary point was um, animals that in, that aren't eating and are in negative energy balance. And, and again, maybe not the negative energy balance, balance may not be causative they may not be eating because they're sick but they're all this is all kind of related and that um, has some relationship with clinical outcome so this is done at a research level brian and as we take it to our clinical applied what can i what can i take from this and i'll, I'll give you my take home from this in, in total is that there are some differences between calves that live and die that we could know at the time of first treatment. We don't have the tools to get there now, and this probably merits further investigation of, can we more accurately narrow that down? What did, what did yeah, you take home? and the authors do a good job of pointing that out, that, you know, hey, we this was kind of exploratory. We found some things, and honestly, if you 
you did a little more research and you could pin this down to one or two, you could probably design shoot side assays to detect that one or two and come up with something that might be a really good predictive tool. I, I think the one thing, and it, again, this is kind of nitpicking at the paper, but I think if I were to make a, a comment that maybe places it can be improved is I always like to see when you look at that many variables, you're likely to find one that's going to come up as significant. And so, and, and I think that's where they came with their conclusion is like, Hey, we need to do some more research. Um, I think they probably understood that, but I always like to see that pointed out that, you know, it's always, there is always the odds when you look at 30 different metabolites, you're probably going to find one. You're going to find something when yeah. you look at that many, but I think a well done paper a good first shot at how do we evaluate some of these things and some things there appear to have some promise worth following up on but the take the other take home is what we didn't find they didn't find differences in temperature they didn't find differences in some of the long auscultation scores there there were some minor differences in visual scores which which we'd have to sort out but Thanks for listening to this episode of After the Abstract on Bovine Science with BCI this episode was supported in part by Lanco Animal Health, who has a commitment to better understanding bovine respiratory disease and how to control it.